Let's take a moment to quiet ourselves and still our hearts before the Lord. We've been thinking this day uh, in our worship service about confidence in Christ. Uh, The parable that Jesus told was specifically told about people who had confidence in themselves and not in God. Uh, So let's let's examine our hearts and uh, and take a allow God's spirit to uh, prepare us for this encounter with his word. O Lord, we give you thanks that you are faithful and that you are just and kind and righteous. We give you thanks that you have mercy on us, even when we don't deserve it. But I guess that's what mercy is, something that's given to us that we don't deserve. So we thank you, Lord, for your love and for your word, which speaks truth into our lives and into our world. Help us to listen well to your spirit in these minutes. Bless this time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our sermon text, Psalm 51. The heading to this psalm says this, For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done in your sight, so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not keep your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. 
You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then this sacrifices whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What do you see? There's plenty to see with your physical eyesight. In this time of year, we have lots of things that flood our senses, not just vision, but smell and sound and taste, the the colors of the changing leaves, the smell of the, the... uh, the, the, the season, the crispness of the air, the chill that is now invading our atmosphere that tells us that something is coming, the pumpkin spice that is in every coffee shop that you go to these days. These are the signs of changing seasons. Maybe you see a young child growing up Maybe you see someone preparing for marriage. Perhaps you see someone moving to a different city. Or you might see a relationship growing deeper or a relationship pulling apart. Perhaps you see a retirement celebration. Or you might see hospital visits and funeral homes. What do you see? I don't mean just with your physical senses, your vision or hearing. I mean your spiritual vision. What does your see? I'm taking a, a kind of an elective class uh, this fall. It's essentially a week-long um, uh, conference that's divided up over 14 weeks and there are video sessions to watch and all this stuff. And, um, and it's, it's just for my own personal development, my own, my own personal growth. The teacher of this course uh, said in the video for this week that the heart is an organ of spiritual perception. And it, we're talking about not just your heart, the thing that pumps your blood and keeps you alive, Uh, not the physical understanding of your heart, but that internal, that heart that you have, it's it's an organ of spiritual perception, sight, being able to see something spiritually and not just visually. And we get at this with our our language. You might say to someone, oh, my heart goes out to you. Or my heart aches because of that situation. Or my heart is full of joy. Or my heart is full of sadness. We we, we use this language about our heart being spiritually aware of what's going on within us and in the world around us. Your eyes and your ears and your other senses may gather information about what is going on in the world around you. Your heart 
is one of those organs that processes that information, helps you find meaning in that information. Sometimes your heart wrestles with the lack of meaning in the situations that you are facing. We often think of the heart as the seat of our emotions. That's where our feelings sort of come from. But this is about more than just emotions. It's about how we process. When a negative situation arises in our lives, our spiritual vision, the the vision of our heart, often becomes cloudy. The way becomes unclear. And the way that your heart deals with that cloudiness or unclearness determines whether you get stuck there in that fog or whether you can find a way to move forward through that situation without ignoring it, without denying the reality of that difficult period. When we ignore difficult times, when we ignore negative situations in our lives, we're really just allowing ourselves to remain stuck in those situations. Choosing not to acknowledge the dark night of our soul, to use the language from our journal, choosing not to acknowledge that means that you will remain in that dark night of the soul longer, that your vision will remain cloudy. So what do you see? I have worn glasses since I was about 10 years old. And so I've gotten very used to the routine of going to the eye doctor and having the vision checked. And is this better or worse or about the same? All of you who are wearing glasses or contacts, you're nodding because you know how that routine goes. When you're thinking about your physical vision, it's important to be able to focus on an object. I mean, that's part of what vision is about. But not to have so much focus that you lose sight of your peripheral vision, too. there's a a mixture of vision that needs to take place with our physical vision. You need to be able to focus on something very uh, acutely, but also you need to be aware of your surroundings. And this comes into play in your driving. You have to be able to see if the... You need to be able to see if someone's coming from the other direction, or if there's a person who's jumping out or a dog crossing the road. We had a fun week this week. That was interesting. Anyway, that's a different story. It's, it's good. Um, so your physical vision has this, this both-and situation where you need to be able to focus closely and keep your vision broad at the same time. And the same is true of our spiritual vision. We need to be able to focus clearly on one thing that might be in front of us, whatever the issue might be, whatever the situation is, or, or our devotion to God or our love for God, whatever is at the center of what our hearts are focusing on. We need to be able to tune that focus while not ignoring the, the world around us and staying spiritually aware, sensitive to the people and situations and things that are going on around us for us to be is to be uh, able to broaden our vision to consider a wider perspective in addition to the narrow perspective that we're thinking about. Psalm 51 is an example of this kind of dual vision or ability to see broadly while staying really narrowly focused. Because this psalm is prompted by a very narrowly focused event in David's life. 
David, the author of many of the Psalms, not all of them, uh, is, the, is the author of the Psalms that we're looking at this month in this series, in, in the month of October, in our journal. And each of the Psalms that we're considering have been prompted by specific events in David's life. First two weeks in October, David was not yet king. King Saul was still the king of Israel. But now in Psalm 51, we've advanced into the period of David's life where he is king. And uh, the story in reference here is found in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And it tells the tale, the dark tale, of how David um, abused his power. He observed a woman bathing, thought her to be very beautiful, and called her to his uh, palace and slept with her, got her pregnant. Um, on top of all of that trouble, he, she was already married, uh, not just to a random person, but to one of David's soldiers who was off fighting the wars that he should have been out there leading them in. The story begins by saying it was the springtime, the time when kings go out to war. And where is this king? Not out there. He is busy, busy back in the palace. So Bathsheba becomes pregnant, and in all of this story, I always want to remind you that Bathsheba is never blamed for what happens to her. She is not at fault. The text does not communicate that in any way, that she somehow seduced David. All on David. She becomes pregnant, and she tells him, I'm pregnant. (laughs) She didn't laugh when she told him, I bet. So then David conspired to have Uriah, who is the husband of Bathsheba, come back from the battle, right? And go home to his wife, and then maybe he would think that the child is his, um, and not think anything of it. Well, Uriah would not do that. It would not be right for him to go home while all of his fellow soldiers were out doing their thing. So he didn't. And uh, David got frustrated by this, right? And uh, then sent Uriah back out to the front lines, carrying a message, and this is very devious and sinister. Uriah carried the message in his own hand to the commander, and the message to the commander said, it was very secret, or else Uriah probably wouldn't have delivered it. It said, uh, put Uriah at the hottest part of the battle, the very front of the lines, and then have everybody else pull back. Uriah had carried that message, not knowing what it was. And that happened, so Uriah dies. And Bathsheba mourns the death of her husband. All of this huge mess, because David couldn't control himself. And so uh, the prophet Nathan shows up on the scene and illustrates this problem in David's life in a very dramatic way. And the amazing part of how how Nathan tells this story to David is that it gets David out of his own shoes. It decenters David. It puts David in the perspective of somebody else. It helps David to think about what he has done from Uriah's perspective, from Bathsheba's perspective. And Nathan turns it on, turns the story on David and says, "You are the one who has done this wrong." You remember the the, the narrative. It's a, a, a beautiful story of helping David to understand what he has done and to help him realize his need for confession and repentance. This psalm is David's written act of confession and repentance. 
And yet it's broad enough, again, with the broad spiritual vision, it doesn't name the specific incident with Bathsheba as such uh, in the text of the psalm, but it's very broad so that others might be able to join in with this in their own personal laments and their own personal acts of confession and repentance. So it's a very useful psalm for, for people throughout the centuries. David's spiritual vision was cloudy. It was certainly cloudy when he was committing adultery and conspiring and murdered. But it was cloudy even when, uh, when Nathan showed him his sin. Because all David could see was his guilt and shame. The psalm says, I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. The only thing his heart could see was his sin. Shame is not a comfortable thing for us to deal with or admit. And I will try to be very careful here. This is a side note to enunciate correctly. Shame. I'm not referencing this young man back here. Shane. Try not to be confusing here. Right. I know. Okay. Shame is not comfortable for us to deal with or admit. We are trained by our society to defend ourselves, to throw off any accusations, to justify ourselves, to see ourselves as a party rather than as the one in the wrong, if we are. Admitting our mistakes, owning our bad decisions, expressing our remorse, these things we just don't do easily, comfortably. And we certainly don't see them modeled in a healthy way by other people. That's why this psalm is so important. Because this psalm gives us language that will help us to to unravel some of that. This psalm is written by no one less than the king of Israel himself, who expresses his shame publicly in a healthy way. In a way that draws him closer to God, in a way that draws us closer to God. For when we get stuck in shame and guilt, our sin is always before us too. Where of the dark nights of our soul? God is not distant or removed from us. God is present with us in the midst of our darkest, most shameful moments. God wants us to know truth and wisdom. God wants to speak joy and gladness into our hearts. God wants to wash us clean. This is all language from this psalm. God wants to cleanse us from our sins. God wants to renew within us our purity of heart, our steadfastness of spirit. The same spirit that causes God to show us unfailing love and mercy. That's the spirit that God wants to instill within us. David is asking God to broaden his spiritual vision, to help him see himself and others, to free David from being stuck in guilt and shame. When shame is the only thing that we can see, we lose the capacity to show love and kindness and mercy to others. 
this spiritual tunnel vision can lead us to believe that no one else matters and maybe even that we don't matter. Perhaps God cannot or will not forgive us for what we have done if our blinders are on so tight. But shame does not have to define our self-understanding. Our spiritual vision can be transformed from cloudy to clear. God is willing and able to forgive every sin if we turn toward God. You might say in the back of your mind, oh, what about that unforgivable sin thing that Jesus talked about once upon a time? He mentioned a sin that could not be forgiven, and sometimes we kind of spin on that a little while and, and lose sight of the, the rule rather than the exception. Jesus mentions this briefly in Matthew 12 and Luke 12 and Mark 3. And he, he names this uh, unforgivable sin as blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, which he doesn't elaborate on very much and has left us to wonder, what in the world does he mean to blaspheme against the Holy Spirit? One way of understanding this that maybe helpful in this context is that this unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is our unwillingness to acknowledge God or our unwillingness to humble ourselves before God. As long as a person is actively rebelling against God, forgiveness is not an option, but that's not God's problem. God wants to forgive It's just that we're not wanting to be forgiven. So in that sense, it becomes unforgivable until we turn toward God. Anyway, we get lost in the weeds, I think, when we start talking about that. Psalm 51 reminds us and calls us to this truth. That we cannot earn God's forgiveness through our religious behavior through our prayers, through our charity, through treating people well. Toward the end of the psalm, David says, you don't want burnt offerings, you don't want sacrifices. That's not the thing. The only thing that God requires of us, the only sacrifice that is acceptable to God is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Humility another way of thinking about that. Humility before God means that we're not hiding our guilt from God. We're not burying our shame. Uh, At the men's breakfast yesterday morning, we talked about Moses who uh, killed an Egyptian to protect one of his own people and buried him in the sand um, way back in Exodus chapter two. We're not trying to bury our shame, our guilt before God. We're not hiding it away from God or others or ourselves. But like David in this psalm, we need to find healthy ways to express our humility before God. To humble ourselves in God's presence. To admit that we have made harmful mistakes while realizing that we are still loved by God. Our spiritual vision can be transformed from shame to praise, from guilt to to joy, from negative self-centeredness to sharing the good news of God's forgiveness with others. The dark night of the soul is when the spiritual vision of our hearts is most cloudy 
The dark night of the soul is where David was when he wrote this psalm. And it's in that dark night that David wrote those beautiful words, create in me a pure heart, O God. But watch this. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, in the Beatitudes that begin the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, Jesus said one of the Beatitudes, blessed are the pure in heart because they will see God. Organ of spiritual sight. And the pure in heart will be able to see God. Not you know, visually, physically, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a spiritual sense of perception. Our pure hearts, made pure by God, can see clearly on a spiritual level. That heart is the heart of Jesus. We often try, I often try to connect our, our uh, psalms, especially in this season, uh, to the life of Jesus. And I found this one a little bit difficult because Jesus never had anything to repent of. <laughs> he never had a reason to express shame for something because he never sinned. So Jesus could not have read these words as his own prayer. But the heart of Jesus is and always has been pure. Jesus knows this pure spiritual sight, this wisdom, the humility of his heart before God. And he expresses that at various moments in his life. If you think to the temptation of Jesus at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus was tempted to sin uh, after those 40 days of fasting. He was physically exhausted, but his spiritual vision remained clear. It was not cloudy, even through that period of temptation. He remained focused on God. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he took several retreats for his own personal solitude and prayer. He showed his desire for deep wisdom and connection with God. And just before his arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, before he was betrayed and arrested and tried and executed, Jesus was praying in that garden, a dark night of the soul, if there ever was one, for Jesus. But in the end, Jesus concluded, not my will, but yours be done. A prayer of humility, a prayer of trusting God in the dark night of the soul. Jesus understood the importance of clear spiritual vision. So we who follow Jesus are called to imitate him in these ways. So friends, what do you see? What does your heart see? Examine your heart for shame, for guilt, for any other source of cloudy vision. And allow this psalm to be your prayer as you express yourself honestly and humbly before God. If you are comfortable to do so, you can use this prayer, this Psalm 51, as your prayer this week as you release guilt and accept God's forgiveness. Follow the example of Jesus as you pursue spiritual sight and wisdom and humility.
Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for this great prayer, for this, uh, this, this terrible story that prompted such a great prayer. Thank you for David's honesty and willingness to, to uh, humble himself before you. That sets an example for each of us. So Lord, we pray that you would speak to our hearts and help us to know your love even as we seek clarity of purity of heart. Help us to see clearly and to not, uh, not hide ourselves from you or bury ourselves in our guilt or shame or any other thing that separates us from you. We give you great thanks for your forgiveness and for the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, which gives us hope that this forgiveness is real and solid and unchanging. We thank you for this time in Jesus' name. Amen.